you can think of all the top brands in the world, but does it mean that they're buying all the material from Italy? Where is the material coming from? And I felt like I just discovered this unknown secret that was being, you know, shared by the fashion world that Ethiopian leather is some of the best in the world. They were just shipping it to Italy to be made, you know, into these premium bags because they're made in Italy. And that was the light bulb moment for sure, where we were there working with these women, incredible women, incredibly talented, hardworking, saying, we want jobs, we want sustainable opportunities. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And we are digging into the human stories behind success. And my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. All right, friends. So we are continuing our entrepreneurship theme for the next two episodes. And I'm just so excited about this next guest, Ian Bentley. He is the co-founder and CEO of Parker Clay, which is a sustainable leather bag brand. And this interview series is just very special because it all happened due to a very serendipitous moment. Yes, I love that word. My husband always points it out. (laughs) But I just love when these serendipitous divine moments happen. And for you to understand the serendipity, I need to give you a bit of the backstory. So if you know me or you've been following my journey, then you might know that I love fashion. I'm not really into designer brands and I don't post all of my outfits on social media, so it may not be apparent. But I do love a stylish look. I love a trendy look. I got this from my mom and I think just growing up in LA. So when I started my first job as an associate at a law firm in San Francisco in 2017, I wanted to have a nice bag for work. Something that I could carry my laptop in that was chic and good quality. And I could finally afford a nice bag, not crazy expensive or anything, but something, you know, nice. I saw this bag on an IG ad for Parker Clay and just, it was beautiful. I bought this beautiful leather backpack because I was walking to work. That was the plan. And I also just love that the company is a social enterprise trying to make the world a better place. I wore it on my commute to work every day and I just felt like a real lawyer with a bag to match. Growing up, I always watched stylish lawyers on TV and I thought, wow, I'm that girl. (laughs) I was feeling myself. Yes, it gave me a boost of confidence. I wore it all the time. And when I started working at another law firm in LA, I bought another Parker Clay bag. It gave me that same feeling and I wore it every day. It's honestly time for a new one. Probably have worn it out. And it's just become a tradition for me. I'm also just a creature of habit and a huge outfit repeater. When I love a look, I wear it all the time. Just quality over quantity for me. It serves as a sign of new professional beginnings. So when the brand's publicist reached out to me to have the CEO on the show, I was in disbelief. I couldn't believe it. I thought, wow, look at God. I love Parker Clay. And then I thought, could this be a sign of new professional beginnings? Perhaps. (laughs) I did my best not to hype Ian up too much in my head because I read people are often disappointed when they meet their heroes. But speaking with Ian, honestly, it just exceeded my expectations. He's such a good human. And I know that whole premise of characterizing people as good and bad is a challenging one in itself. 
I know it's more complicated than that because we are complicated as humans, but he's one of those people who just, they're just a light. And I could just tell that he truly cares about people and he wants to make a positive impact on his family, his business, and the world. And I just wanted to learn from him and his experiences. So because I was so curious, I had so many questions for him. We even stopped recording and I asked him more questions just about his life. We had to do two parts. So this is a two-part series. But before we delve into the first half of the conversation, let me tell you a bit more about Ian. With a background in business development and a passion to enact change, Ian, along with his wife, Brittany, founded Parker Clay while living in Ethiopia. Today, Ian serves as co-founder and CEO of Parker Clay, which has grown to over 200 employees between their office, warehouse, and flagship store in Santa Barbara, California, and their factory and leadership team in Ethiopia. Their commitment is to make a better bag for a better world through a brand which is built to showcase the finest Ethiopian leather and craftsmanship while providing meaningful job opportunities, vocational training, and living wages for at-risk women. As a certified B Corp, Parker Clay is proud to uphold the highest standard of ethical and sustainable processes in both production footprint and social impact. After living in Ethiopia for three years, Ian and his wife, Brittany, and their five children, yes, five, now live in their hometown of Santa Barbara. I think y'all are going to love this conversation, so let's get to it. All right. I am so excited to have you on the show, Ian. Thank you so much for coming on No Street Path. As you know, I am a huge fan of Parker Clay, and I can't wait to just learn more about the origin story and all of that. So thank you so much for coming on. Excited to be here, Ashley. Really excited that we get to share a journey together already through being part of what we're doing. So it's fun. Yeah, yeah. And before we get to the work that you're doing right now, I'd love to start with your childhood. Can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up, your upbringing, a little bit about little Ian? Talk about getting personal. I love it. (laughs) That gets right to it. I've found too that as I've gotten older, that little Ian is such an important character in our journey. And I found that as we interact with other people too, is that little you is a big source of power uh, when you harness it, good and bad. And I grew up in LA. Mom and dad was actually entrepreneurs. They had a floral business. They had a pawn shop. My dad was worked in creating landscaping for families and companies. And so I always grew up around entrepreneurs, but also just very, I would say, middle class family. And we moved up to Santa Barbara from LA in high school, actually. And so that was a big transition, especially leaving friend groups and things like that. But I was always into sports, always just really enjoyed being active and creative. And I think another thing about me is I love being competitive too, whether it be sports. I was always trying to push myself and be competitive with anything that I did and enjoyed doing it. And then stepped into high school and I actually met my wife in high school. So we're high school sweethearts. And it's very strange now that I have children at the age that I was dating my future wife and also even got married at 19 and I have a 19-year-old daughter. So that's strange because I'm like my daughter. I'm like, I don't think you're ready for that yet. (laughs) Although I don't know that I was ready for it. And so, yeah, you know, I think that we started our life and career at a really young age. 
And I still feel like in a lot of ways, little Ian jumped kind of into life pretty quick. And so we, I think both Brittany and I, we have experienced a lot of life in the years we've already lived it. And it's been a just a crazy journey for sure. You did start Parker Clay together. And can you tell us about that journey? Yeah, that was a journey. We knew what we wanted, but also didn't fully know what we were stepping into. And I think that's a big part of that business journey. And, and I think a part of, of our life, right, is that we kind of choose who's around us to some extent, but don't always control the circumstances that happen. And I think that's what's really important is that when you know who's got your back and you know who's with you, you know their motivation, their intentions, that's what takes teams, you know, anywhere in the world to accomplish so much. And so when we were dating, we got married, started our careers. Brittany worked for in kind of corporate design, corporate graphic design for a number of years. I was always in business and sales and marketing. Took a job in Santa Barbara to do real estate development. We had our first two sons. So we started building our family biologically. And my first son, Parker, came along. Then my second son, Clay, came along. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so those are the two boys. That's where the name comes from. And we had talked about adoption when we were dating as something we were both interested in. We did a bunch of research, looked at it, had our first two sons, you know, life was going well, careers were going well. And then Brittany brought up adoption again. And I was like, ah, is now the time? Do we want to do that? And it opened up kind of a whole new world where we felt so eager to understand what was happening. Why were so many children orphaned? What was behind that? And we would read statistics like 160 million orphans in the world. And what we know about statistics is that they are often so big numbers. They're faceless, they're nameless. But for me, what I could do is I could look out my back door and see Parker and see Clay running around, playing in the backyard, having security, having a home, having food on the table, knowing, not even thinking about those things. And then that number 160 million pops in your head and you're like, what if that was Parker? What if that was Clay? And that really, for me personally, it changed so much. It changed the way that I thought about that. And it was like, if there was a kid somewhere else in the world, not just in Africa or I mean, it could be here in California, right? It's, it's everywhere. I've got room at my table. How can I open up my home to someone who needs that? And that was what really sent us on that journey for adoption, where we adopted a little girl from Ethiopia. She was just a few months old and traveled to the country for the first time. And I think in our minds, Ethiopia, as for probably many, is a place where there's problems, there's poverty, there's issues. And what I hadn't heard enough about at the time was the beauty, the potential, the incredible things that are happening there. It was just, and that, like, it smashed together when we were there, where we saw certainly these challenges of specifically women who were all saying, hey, look, we don't really want handouts. What we want is jobs. We want the dignity of work. That's what we want. And so Brittany and I, we just kind of, became so consumed by this idea of how can we help translate that and create opportunities for women, not just to survive, but to truly thrive. And so we came back from Ethiopia 
with our daughter back to our boys and our whole family. And we're like, okay, what does life look like now? And we were so unsettled. And so get like, what do we do? And it actually led us to go back a few times within a matter of months of adopting our daughter to Ethiopia to meet with more people, talk to people. And we met this group that was helping women out of trafficking, out of prostitution, doing counseling, rehabilitation work, and then job placement. And so we really felt connected with this group, really felt like we could make an impact, didn't know how, whether it was donating, whether it was visiting once a year. Then this crazy idea pops up. What if we move there? And and I were both like, you know, because again, like I said earlier, like when we know what we want or like we get on the same page, we're a force. Like we just go for it. And we were both like, okay, well, that was just a crazy idea. I'm not sure. What does that even mean? What would that look like? So long story short, within less than a year of adopting our daughter, Brittany and I are standing at LAX with our kids and one-way tickets, moving our entire family to Ethiopia. And we just left everything. We sold everything, left everything, and moved there. And maybe part two of that is that wasn't to start Parker Clay. That was to move there to focus on helping these women create jobs and building that. Parker Clay came as a byproduct of being there and seeing the opportunity, but to merge it with creating jobs for these women. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that so much. And I feel like I see such a pattern and theme when people go into entrepreneurial ventures, especially if it's from a passion perspective. And I think it's often you're following your passion, you're following your interest, you're curious about something, and you're doing work that is aligned with the kind of person that you want to be. And then something incredible is a byproduct of that. And so I just love that story. I think it's fascinating. So tell us about the business about how did you get it started? You know, why clothing? It doesn't seem like you have, or bags specifically, it doesn't seem like you have that background. Or do you? <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> yeah. So we're living in Ethiopia, working with these women, about a year into living in Ethiopia. So it's like 2013. And we were out, it was Brittany's birthday. We were out shopping and there's not big shopping malls. There's not a lot of shopping options necessarily. But we went to this little boutique that we knew had cool stuff, and we found this leather bag. Again, it caught both Brittany and my eye to the point where we looked at it and went, what is that? So we go over, open it up, and it has a tag inside that says Made in Ethiopia. And we both were like, oh, okay. We want to know more. Literally on the backside of this tag is a phone number for the person who made it. So we call and go, we want to know more. Like, tell us, where did you make this? Where did you get the leather? And he's like, Ian. Do you not see the goats and the cows? There's, there, there's like animals everywhere. Where do you think, as a byproduct of that, where do you think it goes? And I was like, well, is it good? I want to know more. So we meet at a tannery and we go in this day, there, there's shipping containers out front, like 40 foot big shipping containers, and they're loading them with finished leather. And I'm, I asked the owner of the tannery, where are you shipping this to? Thinking maybe it's just going across town. And he goes, that's going to Italy. We ship all the time to Europe. And I was like, hold on, you're shipping... Ethiopian leather to Italy. And I guess at the time, 2013, this whole idea of conscious consumerism was just kind of getting started. If you can recall, in 2013, there was a factory in Bangladesh called Rana Plaza that collapsed and killed over 1,100 people. And it was 
all over front page news because there was some major labels that were being made in this place that clearly was not, you know, up to the standards of human rights. And it became this conversation of, shoot, where are my clothes made? How are they made? Who's making them? And here we are in Ethiopia seeing the behind the scenes of potentially, when I say made in Italy, you can think of all the top brands in the world. But does it mean that they're buying all the material from Italy? Where is the material coming from? And I felt like I just discovered this unknown secret that was being you know, shared by the fashion world that Ethiopian leather is some of the best in the world. They were just shipping it to Italy to be made you know, into these premium bags because they're made in Italy. And that was the light bulb moment for sure, where we were there working with these women, incredible women, incredibly talented, hardworking, saying, we want jobs, we want sustainable opportunities. And here is this beautiful material. Let's see if we can make some products at the source here in Ethiopia. And so we designed a few bags. We brought them back to friends here in the U.S., Everyone was like, where'd you get that? And we're like, we made it. <laughs> like, oh, I want one. And that in 2014 kicked it off. We started it out making a few bags. We sent them back to a friend's garage here in California who was like fulfilling them on the weekends. We opened up an e-commerce website, you know, back when I think even before Shopify existed, it was like Squarespace. And we just started figuring things out. We started with a few people, a few sewing machines, a few employees. International business is a whole like other thing, right? So understanding different legal requirements in different countries and how as a foreigner you can operate, how as a foreigner you can invest. Had to figure out all those things as we've grown. And I guess at that point too, it's important to find, I think when you think of these origin stories, it's so important as a business owner or if you're interested in business to know it doesn't just happen. You know, like I love the recent movie Air that came out about the Jordans. Such a great entrepreneur journey. Like we all know the Jordans now, but back then that wasn't a thing. They weren't even on the map for those. And there's moments in time where you have to kind of be willing to risk it all. I think that's the true piece of it. For us buying a one-way ticket, we felt we knew it was the right thing. And you're like, okay, let's go. Like, you got to throw a little bit of recklessness, it almost feels like, to it. And so for us, that led to where we're at today, which we are now at about over 200 employees, 80% are women. We have our own factory in Ethiopia. We're one of the highest rated B Corps in the world for leather goods. We're the largest exporter of finished leather goods from Ethiopia to the world. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like we're still just kind of getting started because the opportunity here is massive. But it started with, yeah, those first steps. Oh, what a journey. Yeah, you're right. There's so many moving pieces and it isn't overnight. That's so true. And I think that I am curious about the conscious consumer because I am one. And that is what really drew me to your work and the bag specifically. I just, at first it was just the look because I want it to be nice and clean and chic. <laughs> and so it's very much my vibe and my style. But then I saw the mission behind it. And you talked about, I think it was 2013 or 2011 when there was the unfortunate event in Bangladesh and just this 
people were curious about where are our clothes being made? Is this ethical? Is this sustainable? And so how has the conscious consumer really impacted the fashion industry and your business specifically? Yeah, I think sometimes with fashion, you have trends that phase in and out. You know, you've got, you know, now my kids all want to wear the clothes I wore in high school, right? It's like those 90s are roaring back. And those kind of come and go. And then there's there's movements. And I think this is a movement around conscious consumerism, no doubt. In the same way we got consumed with the idea of fast food, right? We know fast food is probably not the best to be putting in our bodies. And I think the same with fast fashion is what we're putting on our bodies has the same type, not only physical effect, but it has the effect on many, many other people. And for years, the fashion industry has been a black box. And even today, there's still, I think for many of these big companies, you just, I can't tell you even, like I'll give you a real example of even today in our business. We look really closely at our margins. And as a business, you recognize as you start growing and getting deeper into what makes you profitable or growth and things like that is you look at your margin and there are certain things that could easily be cut, right? Or you could easily kind of go, hey, well, this would really shrink our margin or increase our margin if we cut these things out. But usually it's at the cost of something or someone and you have to make decisions as a business owner. And this is where I think that business can merge with the movement around conscious consumerism is that the consumer also has the force to vote with their dollars, the force to vote with what they're choosing to eat, what they're choosing to wear. And that's important. Like historically, we've heard that term of greenwashing, right? That's kind of well, well understood. For listeners who might not know about greenwashing, can you explain? Because I actually don't know either. So maybe an extreme you know, where it's like, if you're a cigarette company and you're like, hey, we're planting trees to, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, really? Like, are you doing good? Or you're kind of taking a small ounce of something that is impactful and you're, oh, you're like trying to wash over everything you do. It may be really bad things that you do, but you sprinkle in a little impact. And I think that this whole movement of conscious consumerism has gotten the attention of a lot of big brands. One of them is H&M. Where like H&M has talked about their conscious like cotton and things like that. Well, they knew that they were really only doing a little bit of this impact and really blowing up the story like it was their whole line. That would be more greenwashing. So what's happened as a result is now a lot of influence and influencers and people and consumers are doing what's called green hushing, which I think it's like that should be the scary thing for companies that are greenwashing. Because they're going out of their way to saying, hey, H&M, like, no, you're actually not doing that. And we're going to tell people about that. And so, and they've responded, you know, to that. And I think that's part of the growth is that, look, as a customer, as a consumer, you have the power to influence the type of brands, the type of products that are being produced. And I think that what happens is that what I think and I would imagine you as a conscious consumer feel is we hate to compromise. Oh, I really want that bag or I really want that clothing. Well, I really want to buy this food, but I can't afford it. Or, you know, it's like, so I'll buy this lesser option because it's all I can get. And I think that's part of us as consumers. It's why Amazon is so big. 
It's like, I want that ease. I want that price. But we have to make that conscious choice to say, you know what, even if I spend a little bit more, this is what my values are and this is what I represent. And so I'm going to shop that. And that's what we're seeing is that those conscious consumers, they are willing to pay a more of a premium for products, but they're going to hold those companies accountable. And I think that what we need to see is the success of companies that are accountable, that are doing the right thing, because that's going to influence more business. Right now, you see these huge giant companies that are crushing it in the market, but you know it's like they're doing it at the expense of the people behind it, and the customers don't know. You know, it's like it just supports things in the wrong way. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I was just like I was very strategic about my bag. I also was with my engagement ring and making sure it was ethically sourced, and did a lot of research. And thankfully, my husband. Followed through with that one. So he's a good man. He's a good man. I can tell already. He's he's a good man. That's a good point too, right? Because you're like, yeah, you're gonna wear this wedding ring that represents such an important point in your life. You're gonna look at every day and you're gonna go, this bond, this marriage, like what a moment. And then to go, I hate the idea of like some children, you know, mining gems or thing. You know, you're like, that would destroy like that is not what I want. So are you willing to pay more? Yes. How much more is I think the question. And, you know, or you get a smaller one or it's so there's different options at different levels. But I think that we need to make that the more of the norm. We can't make the, you know, and I think people just don't know how to find those options. Right? Right now, we may need to search a little bit more. But I'm hoping that becomes a much easier search for more people because that becomes the norm of business. Yeah, I agree. Definitely just creating a bigger platform for these kinds of businesses and also just from a affordability perspective, trying to figure that out too, just because, you know, how capitalism works. Unfortunately, the ease and the money, people are still going to go towards that just because, you know, not everybody has a financial means for these things. And so, it can be a challenging balance. And I am curious about how you balance probably some of these challenging. How do you balance your business and those incentives and profit and growth with people and the mission? Yeah, you got to anchor with a really clear understanding of your mission. I think that's a great place to start. Really knowing what your core values are and setting your sights on this vision, not just for today, but what that looks like in the future. So if we arrive at that destination, what does success look like? And I think that's a big part of the conversation, right? So let's say we you know, become a billion dollar company and we have created all this money for investors and the people who are connected in that way, but it hasn't benefited the people. Are we successful? You know, no. Let's say we have all that and for me, my marriage is not good or I'm not a good father. That's not good enough for me. So I think the question is, what are your non-negotiables? I think that's a powerful question to ask yourself personally and ask yourself as a business owner, entrepreneur. What are your non-negotiables? What are you willing to, because you're going to have to sacrifice at some level. What does that look like? And what's non-negotiable? And so I know for me, as a husband, as a father, those are at the top of the list. You know, the impact we want to make, that's up there as well. And I have like an undying belief that 
you don't need to compromise on those things that you can have a thriving marriage, a thriving family, thriving business. And historically we call this like work-life balance, right? I don't like that only because I don't know that there's ever like this perfect balance. I think if anything, it's more of this rhythm. If you're into music, you know that music has dynamicness to it. It goes up, goes down. And you find this right rhythm to kind of go through life, business with. And you got to make sure that that music sounds good. Otherwise, it's going to be like one note the whole time. And, you know, I think it's in business to keep you honest. It's putting good people around you, too. It's always is going to come back to people and why people are with you. You know, do you have a shared mission? Because if you're clear with your mission, you're clear with your values, are people aligned? Do they understand them? Is it clear? How as an entrepreneur, I'm constantly repeating our values, our mission. Like that's one, I think as a CEO, that's one of the things that you have to do the most. And if people aren't aligned, then you're going to find that someone went off and did something else. You're like, wait, that doesn't align with this. Like one of the things at Parker Clay is that we win or we learn. So if I'm sitting down with my team in Ethiopia and they go, oh, I failed at this thing. And I instantly go, what did you learn? Let's not use failure. Let's use, what did we learn? And it changes the whole mindset of it. So I think that's part of how you have to infuse it. And for us, Impact, we are, so legally, we're a public benefit corporation. We're a Delaware PBC, which because like is integrates this idea of public benefit into our bylaws. So that's one way. We're a certified B Corp, which requires us to go through a pretty in-depth certification process, which makes sure we're not just saying we do a bunch of things. It's saying, okay, no, we're going to actually make sure you're accountable and that what you say is what you do. And they really do a great job. B corporations do a great job at reviewing, looking through those things and making sure that you're staying accountable to it. So that's another layer. You know, I think if you're working internationally and you have different operations in different countries that the leadership teams are there. I think for us being in Ethiopia about once a quarter is really important being face to face because I think and would hope if some of those companies went to Bangladesh and Rana Plaza and saw what was happening, they would have been deeply accountable for that. But it's almost like the ability by ah, oh, I was never there. So I never saw that. I wish I would have known. Well, put yourself there. Like show up. And not only that, building those relationships. Like when I'm face to face with someone, I care about that person. Like, so I think those are maybe a few guidelines and, and rules to kind of think through that. But I think you have to constantly check yourself and you have to make sure you have accountability to some of those metrics in order to make sure that you're not mission drifting off of what you're trying to do. Yeah. No, I think all that is excellent advice. I'm just thinking, Ian, can you please be my boss? Because (laughs) (laughs) just really, you know, wonderful leadership advice. And you're right. It's just going and humanizing the people that are working for your company and trying to really live out that mission. You want to know people. And so, and I love, you know, will you, excuse me, you said, can you remind me? You win or you learn. You win or you learn. You win or you learn. Yes. Yes. I love that. It's not, it's not failure. And, it, you know, you've seen some of the greats of even sports mention things like that. I mean, Michael Jordan won like, I think, six championships, but he lost 
many more than that. You know, he's missed many shots. Like one of the greatest Nike ads created was this whole, I don't know why I'm talking about Michael Jordan so much, but well, he's, <laughs> he's amazing. I was going to say, all, because of the, what you told me earlier, how you movie. said how you just love, and also how you just love sports and growing up and how that is certainly reflected just See, in your personality. You're connecting young Ian back to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. But yeah, I think that early when you're young, you think that you lose, it's all over. And it doesn't. My, like my son, and this is the cool thing about being a dad. Like that's my fa- one of my favorite titles in the world is just dad. It's amazing. And I almost feel like emotional talking about it. My son, Parker, he's a sophomore in high school. And he just he got, he got his team to the quarterfinals in lacrosse. They just lost their quarterfinal game. But I've been talking to him so much about this. Like, win or lose, you're amazing. Like, I love you. I'm in your corner. I'm going to cheer you on. And so we were driving back home, and there was a big mountain in Malibu. It's like this big sandy mountain that's beautiful. It kind of goes down into the ocean. I don't know if you know what it is. It's like, yeah, if you're driving along PCH, it's this cool big sandy hill, and you can go up to the top and run down. So we just, like, jumped out of the car and bombed down it. And it just was like this, I don't know, this moment to celebrate the hard work and to step into the next direction and, and to keep going. And, you know, that's the beauty is it's not failure would be you're, you're done. Like, you know, business, if you have to close your bike, you run out of money or something like that. Like those are those big definitive moments. But when you get to wake up and keep going, we're learning. We're all on this journey of learning and growing. And I think that's what we want to encourage. And so early young Ian probably thought losing was failure. Ian at a more mature age as I'm growing and learning is that that's opportunity to grow and learn. And it's the stuff that makes you stronger. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.